When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast can be heard on the Farm and Rural Ag Network. Even though we are located here in Ontario, Canada, we talk about agriculture issues all around the world. And today, our guest is a cooperative extension specialist in animal biotechnology and genomics at the University of California, Davis. She's an Aussie with a Dutch name who's working in California, Alison Van Inenem. If you keep trying, eventually you'll become a Canadian. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a long name for sure. <laughs> okay, so normally I wouldn't do this, but since your bio is so impressive, I'm just going to read it in its entirety. Allison has given over 470 invited presentations to audiences all around the world. She's appeared on national media, including Dr. Oz, Animal Planet, and the December 2014 Intelligence Squared debate on genetically modifying food. She served on several national committees, including the USDA National Advisory Committee on Biotechnology and 21st Century Agriculture, the National Academics Committee on Science Breakthroughs 2030, a strategy for food and agricultural research, and was a temporary voting member of the 2010 FDA Veterinary Medical Advisory Committee meeting on the Aqua Advantage salmon, the first GE animal to be evaluated for entry into the food supply. Dr. Van Enenem was the recipient of the 2010 National Award for Excellence in Extension from the American Association of Public and Land-Grant Universities and the 2014 Burlog Cast Communication Award. Allison, that's about all the talking I'm prepared to do. You go now. <laughs> well, that's kind of a, a a big introduction there, Wendell. So, yeah, I mean, basically, I'm just a scientist and I work in animal genetics. <laughs> that's probably what people need to know. So, and we met briefly at the Canadian premiere of the movie Food Evolution. So the question that I think I really want to know is in making this movie and being involved, did you get to meet Neil deGrasse Tyson? <laughs> I did, actually. Um, so Food Evolution is a, is a documentary that's coming out this week, actually the 23rd of June in New York. Um, and the narrator of the movie is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And when the movie came out at its film festival debut in New York City last year, Neil deGrasse Tyson was at that screening. And so I did actually get a chance to meet with him. And I got a selfie with him too. <laughs> yeah, you did. And tell us a little about the movie. So this is not your typical egg-based movie. This is a big budget production. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if it's a big budget. I guess um, it's a movie around I information. How do we how do we get information and how do we make decisions? Um, and I guess really for me, working in agricultural science, I'm was a little bit hesitant to get involved in a documentary around food production and agriculture because there's been some pretty bad ones out there. I think uh, if I look back at the history, there's been some very um, kind of biased things like. Food Inc. and Cowspiracy and those tied GMO, OMG. Um, Hollywood hasn't had the best relationship with the truth as it relates to documentaries around food production. And so when the producer and director approached me about participating, I was pretty wary as to where they were going, what their angle was. And um, I guess what assured me a little bit was that the funding source was the Scientific Society, the Institute for Food Technologists. 
And really they were wanting to do a movie around how science is used in food production and that's actually a topic I am pretty passionate about. Um, and so I agreed to go ahead and be part of the movie. Well, we're going to talk a fair bit about the movie, obviously, but before we do that, let's go back and talk a little bit about your background. So you went to the University of Melbourne. So yeah, I did agricultural science there. Um, so I um, actually grew up in the city, but I had you know relatives that had farms and I was very involved in horses. Um, and that really is what got me interested in that. And uh, you know, at that time, Norman Borlaug's work was just getting kind of recognized for the, the you know, the improved genetics as it relates to plants. And I've always had an interest in, wow, I wonder, you know, if you could do improved genetics in animals that would kind of combine those two interests. And so I've been fortunate to actually end up working in that very space. Right. And, and so your research was done at UC Davis, right? Yes, yep. So I'm I did my PhD in genetics here and now I work in as a cooperative extension specialist which really takes technology to the field. Uh works with farmers to identify how you might use science in in food production and that's really my job is mostly that. I also do have a research lab that does you know hardcore hard science, uh molecular genetics and the likes and so I have kind of you know, if I, I'm a little bit um, ADHD, I guess. So if I get bored with, uh, you know, giving talks to farmers, I'll come and do a little bit of hardcore science and then go back out when I get sick of that. And uh, kind of I go on both sides of, of the fence. And so I think that helps me keep grounded as to what are the problems farmers are facing and how might, you know, technology be able to be used in a way that makes sense for their production system. Right. And when I was reading some of your stuff, one that caught my interest in particular was omega-3 milk using genetic engineering in order to produce a milk that's high in omega-3 fatty acids. And of course, we're going to get a little technical here for some people on uh, my background is dairy nutrition. And so when we talk about, you know, a milk that's high in omega-3 fatty acids, typically we're talking about feeding a diet that is high in those fatty acids. So it becomes quite challenging to get milk that's high in omega-3 fatty acids, which is good for people, without feeding a diet that isn't necessarily great for the cows. Right. Yeah, well, we'll get our nerd on a little bit here, I guess, to kind of explain that. So basically mammals and, and most animals can't produce omega-3 fatty acids. And omega-3 fatty acids are good for the brain, right? That's why you should mm -hmm. always eat your fish. That's oily fish. Um, and basically, the enzyme that produces omega-3 fatty acids does exist in one animal, and that's a worm. And so what we did was because ruminants, when they digest their food, they have all of the bugs in their, in their rumen that break down the fatty acids, they produce a mostly unsat or saturated milk product. So what we need really is to, rather than trying to dietarily alter the omega-3 content of their milk, what if we could introduce the gene that makes omega-3 fatty acids into the cow genome? And so we were actually able to do that in mice and uh, significantly elevate the omega-3 that was in their milk. Um, and conceptually, we wanted to do that in cows, but that was right at the time, actually, when all public funding for producing genetically engineered animals was actually put on hold, and we were not able to do that here. But China went ahead and used the exact methods of the paper and did make um, some omega-3 cows, and uh, they, they are in existence there now. Not on the market, but it technically is a concept that uh, they, they did put into ruminants. Right. The problem with the work that you did is you have to milk an awful lot of mice to fill the, to fill <laughs> the dairy case. Yeah. I, I did become quite skilled at that. So you may not know they have 10 nipples. Um, <laughs> 10 tiny so, little nipples. 
We rigged up a little um, kind of, we used the tips of pipettes to actually milk. You get like one drop out of each nipple and we would go around each of the 10 nipples and get, if we were really lucky, about, you know, 20 drops that we could do our analysis on. Um, and so it wasn't very fun for the mice, I don't think. And it wasn't that fun for the researchers either. Um, but it is on my resume. I'm, I'm a, mil a mouse milker. Wow. And, and just so that the Twitter universe understands you, you still can't use that method to milk almonds. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure your dairy audience will agree that milk is defined as the, uh, the, the secretion of a mammary gland. And I've yet to see, um, you know, a, a, an, an udder on an almond. This is of interest. You'll, you'll be interested in this. The UK, can't remember exactly where, has just passed a law saying that you can no longer call products that aren't actually milk from a mammal milk. So they can't call it almond milk in some parts of Europe anymore. <laughs> well, maybe they could go after all the other misleading labels that are on different products, like clean food. That's my new one that really bugs me. You know, is, that, is the food everyone else is producing dirty, is it? Is that what the in, in, in insinuation is? It's this kind of misleading marketing is just getting out of control. And it's, it's actually hurting, I think, our ability to actually produce food in a way that minimizes environmental impact. And, and that really bugs me. I, I think we're working against our own shared best interests of, of trying to produce food in a way that um, is is um, efficient and, and minimizes the environmental footprint of a, of the products we're producing. I really think we're, we're going backwards there by scaring people away from safe technologies and basically misleading them into buying products that, that probably don't even align with their own core interests. No, um, and, that, and that's one of the messages that comes across quite strongly in the film. And the, the movie is specifically around the misconceptions and the misinformation around genetic engineering. Let's just do a little bit of quick history of genetic engineering sort of leading up to present day. Take us back. What was the real early science around genetic engineering? Sure. So, so let's just, you know, GMOs is kind of what the public uses to explain that technology, but almost all scientists will use genetic engineering, which is very specifically uh, refers to basically moving a gene, a useful gene from one organism into another using recombinant DNA technology. And that technology kind of came around in the 80s. Um, and it gets used in medicine all the time. For example, insulin is a product of a genetically engineered microorganism where the gene to make human insulin was moved into bacteria and that gets used by type 1 diabetics. Um, it gets used in, for things like food production, cheese making, the chymosin is genetically engineered. When it comes to food, however, or actual food products and, and crops and animals, that's when it tends to become really controversial. And so basically the technology to do that came around, you know, into maturity in the 1990s. And so in 1996 or so, the first genetically engineered field crops came into being. And that were things like insect protected crops that can carry the Bacillus thuringiensis or BT protein that protects it from caterpillars. And the herbicide-tolerant crops, like the Roundup-ready crops, that's resistant to the herbicide um, glyphosate. So those crops are now used by 18 million farmers globally, and a very high number of those are in the developing world. Um, and that's where it's really had a big impact on decreasing insecticide use in cotton production. 
Animals isn't such a happy story. Uh, we don't have a single approved genetically engineered animal on the market anywhere in the world, with the exception of one country that's north of America. Uh, let me think now, which one could that be? That's right, Canada is the only country that currently allows aqua-advantaged salmon, which ironically enough, was actually produced by a public sector Canadian university um, back in 1989, so a quarter of a century ago, and it was approved last year. And I would like to say that as Canadians, we are particularly forward-thinking and take a science-based approach. But I think on the the salmon issue, maybe that one just sort of slipped through because we certainly have our food activists here in Canada. The reason that you've approved it is you actually have a product-based regulatory system. And so the regulators looked at whether or not that fish posed any health concerns. And that really is no. The answer was no. And so it was, was approved, whereas it gets a little bit more political in other areas of the world. So, Alison, tell me as a scientist, as you're doing this research on genetic engineering, which is what you're focused in every day, at least when you're doing your PhD, does it ever cross your mind that maybe we're doing something here that is not going to be accepted by the public? Um, well, to be to be honest, my research program mostly uses just conventional breeding techniques, um, but I work in cattle, particularly um, working on disease resistance in cattle. Um, and I guess as a breeder, I just, I don't, see a huge distinction between different breeding methods that we might use. We use some pretty sophisticated technologies in conventional cattle breeding as it is. Um, things like genomic selection and embryo transfer and artificial insemination, a lot of things that are done, quote unquote, in the lab to basically select for animals that are ideally suited to our production systems. And so I think most biologists don't see like this huge dramatic cutoff or red line in the sand whereby genetic engineering is dramatically different to what we've been doing conventionally. And so I think didn't really, when I was going through doing my PhD back in the, the kind of the early 90s, there wasn't this huge pushback against GMOs. That's really been created um, due, I would argue, to kind of fear-mongering around this technology over the last 20 years since it's kind of been used widely in, in agricultural production systems. And if you look at the genesis of where that's all coming from, it's quite often competing business interests that are trying to get you to buy their product. Um, and so, I, you know, rather than saying theirs is better, they have to say yours is going to, you know, damage you in some way. And it's kind of really um, disingenuous marketing. And unfortunately, it's had the effect of really precluding public sector scientists from using the technology to do things like disease-resistant animals or, um, you know, many of the small crops that have been developed in public sector institutions like fungus-resistant strawberries, for example, can't come to market. And so it's really limited the application of the technology, which I think is really unfortunate. And in our this day and age of sensationalism and ratings and the way that those decisions are made, the unfortunate thing is that that kind of a, a fear-based story and messaging sells and gets people's attention. It's a lot easier to convince people that they should be afraid than it is to convince them that they should feel totally comfortable with the technology. Right, right. I think there's a really quote, there's a quote in the movie, I think Mark Linus says something like, it's a lot easier to scare people than it is to reassure them. And, you know, the scientists have been trying for years to give people scientific facts, and that's not how people are making their decisions. And I think that's what the movie really focuses on. We tend to make decisions, or at least the, the regular public, as distinct from kind of nerdy scientists, based on their emotions and, and their gut feel and whether they trust um, where the message is coming from. And if you haven't made a decision based on science, 
science isn't going to change your opinion, right? You've made it on a different um, different reason. And I think that's where we've been super unsuccessful as science communicators in getting the message out there that this is this is a technology that the, every single scientific society in the world says is safe. Um, and yet, you know, most of the public think it's not. And it's very similar to politicized topics like vaccinations, right? Where, you know, the very clear benefits and yet you've got these groups that just will stick in their bubble of this is something that's going to damage my child and they'll intentionally harm or put their child in potential harm um, despite what the what the data says. And it's super frustrating as a scientist to see that and to have people kind of making those decisions. But that's where we're at. And this whole um, how to deal with false facts and, and people making decisions based on incorrect information is kind of the, the challenge of, of this of our, of our time, I think, at this juncture in history, we've got, you know, whole alternative news going out there. And, and so how do you try and get people to focus on actually what the real data and the real facts are? Um, and that's really, I think, what the film tries to ask is, you know, where are you getting your information? And is there anything that you've changed your mind about? That's a really challenging question to ask. If you are just not willing to change your mind, irrespective of what the data says, then you've become kind of an ideologically married to a particular position rather than letting the evidence make your make your decision. And that's really what the movie, I think, explores a little bit is how do we get here? So let's talk about the movie a little bit because sure. it is our best Hollywood shot at telling the right side of the story. It does all of the things that a Hollywood movie is supposed to do. It pulls at your heartstrings a little bit. It manipulates you emotionally a little bit. Of course, when the other side does that stuff, you know, it's effective. So when we do it, it's been criticized as doing just that, being manipulative and not playing by the rules of the science. So the genesis of the movie, who's the main creative guy behind this movie? So the director is a guy called Scott Hamilton Kennedy, and he's actually an Academy Award nominated director, and he lives in Hollywood. Uh, so he's an urban guy who came to this movie after IFT put out a, a call for directors interested in making a movie around food production. And so he's the one that had absolute control over what the movie was going to say. And, and he started off with this grandiose vision of doing all food production in a 90-minute documentary. And I think after a couple of months, he said, ooh, I think this might be a little broader than we had in mind. And so he narrowed down on the GM debate as kind of a proxy for bigger questions around how we make decisions around food. And, you know, working in ag science, and I think most farmers and people working in ag, you know, we've been kind of dealing with these these you know, alternative narratives around agriculture for for 20 years. I mean, my entire career in animal agriculture deals with misinformation and, and people's assumptions around, you know, why farmers do things are usually wrong. And so I think that he kind of narrowed it down to, to GMOs. And what he brings to the table is not scientific expertise, but the storytelling narrative expertise that directors of documentaries bring. So if I had made this movie, it would have been the most boring movie you've ever seen. It would have been chock full of facts and there wouldn't have been any kind of appeal to ethos or, or um, you know, emotion. It would have been very type one, you know, boring. And so when he put it together, it was like, oh, I wouldn't have thought of putting that and that together or I wouldn't have thought of going there. But he really does it and is, I mean, there's literally hundreds of hours of footage and you have to cram it all into 93 minutes. And I think um, that's really 
you know, that's where they excel, the the creative, you know, Hollywood type people, uh, in doing that and telling it in a way that's interesting to people. Right. And I was in the audience at the screening. I got goosebumps, which is what a movie is supposed to do, draw you in and get you invested in it emotionally. You don't usually get goosebumps at a science documentary on food production, though. <laughs> well, I'm not I'm not your average person going to a movie. So, uh, so, so Allison, tell me about sort of the process of actually being involved. I have to assume this is a first experience for you. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, so, you know, the first the first time I met them, they came to Davis and. They were interested in beef production and the, the global environmental footprint of beef production. And so we had some rather boring discussions around methane production and uh, we went and filmed the cows and things. And I think that was at the stage when this movie was still going to be about all things to do with food production. Um, and then um, as it got a bit into it, it became obvious that this GMO discussion was going to become more um, more important in the movie. And so it actually just happened that I was asked to do that Intelligence Squared debate on GMOs in New York City um, in 2014. And that was the film crew came along to actually film that as well. Um, and so that was just kind of fortuitous. It happened at that particular time, point in time when they were making the movie. And so they ended up going there. Well, and that debate is an interesting story in itself, because there was a fairly famous science communicator that was in the crowd that night, Bill Nye. And aside from you fangirling over Bill Nye and and getting a selfie with him, there was a fairly significant exchange that happened with Bill Nye. Tell us a little about that. Right. So so Bill Nye, the science guy, of course, is a, is a well-known science communicator, and my kids watched him when they were young, and so I was kind of psyched that he was in the audience. And so he was he, he had been quite opposed to GMOs, um, and in fact, in his book, he had written a kind of a negative chapter on it. And so when he was at the debate, which obviously went for 90 minutes, and, and there was a lot of back and forth, and, and eventually um, came to the, the audience voted on what they thought on GMOs, and a, and a fair number of the agnostic people on the technology actually thought that the debate was such that they were kind of for the technology. But I spoke to Bill Knight on the way out after the debate, um, and he wanted to clarify whether or not the use of GMOs had increased or decreased the use of harmful pesticides in agriculture. And the data is pretty solid on this. Um, and so I said, well, it's decreased it. Um, and he said, OK, I'm going to look into that. And he did. And being a scientist, as he should, he looked at the data, and when the data didn't conform with what he thought, he changed his opinion. Um, and that is the very definition of science. That's how we make decisions. We set hypotheses, we get data, we look at the data, and we let that inform our opinion. And so I give him a lot of credit for that. He went back and edited his book and changed his chapter, and that's not a, a, a small task. And so, yeah, it was it was kind of cool. I, and, yes, I did get a selfie with him, and I asked the film directors not to include that clip because kind of makes me look like a three-year-old but uh, I think they were trying to humanize scientists and make us you know uh, appear like we actually do have human emotions uh, and so it did end up getting left in there but oh well <laughs> well and, and to, to be totally fair that, that would have been my exact reaction with Bill Nye <laughs> as well. they really did do a good job I thought of humanizing scientists and and you in particular you talked a little bit about sort of why you do feel so strongly about this and that that was one of the most moving parts of the movie for me. Why, why do you feel so strongly? 
Well, I, I think that working in this particular field I, and animal agriculture more generally, um, I think we see, you know, things like pink slime and, and um, RBST and um, we're, we're getting all sorts of pushback against technologies. And as a scientist, I'll spend, you know, my entire career trying to improve production efficiency by, I don't know, 2% or something like that would be amazing if you could do that genetically. And then just in the in the swoop of, of one misleading campaign will eliminate entire technologies or entire production systems that basically put us back, you know, 20 years in terms of our productivity without a thought to the opportunity costs associated with that because something sounds scary, you know, pink slime or, or whatever. And it's really, I feel like, I don't even know why I bother being an agricultural scientist if we're not able to use this technology. And quite honestly, breeding and, and genetic improvement is probably the most important part of sustainable production. Um, because if you can have the improvements that are associated with genetics incorporated into production systems and you can get things like disease resistance in our plants and animals, then you've pretty much ticked all the boxes of sustainability. The animals don't get sick. They don't need to be treated with antibiotics. They do better in the production systems and their welfare is improved. And why would you want to try and stop that type of application from going into the production systems? And so I'm pretty passionate about it because it's actually stopping what I'm passionate about from being able to be used in ag production systems. And it doesn't make sense to me to arbitrarily say, you know, we're not going to use XYZ technology when there's no safety associations with the, or concerns with those technologies. We're just basically cutting off our nose to spite our face. Um, and, you know, I, I went, I don't use, I was in the grocery store this last weekend and I just wandered around and I'm like, wow, it's like you've got these people with this amazing abundance of food basically telling farmers, well, I don't think that you should be able to use this technology or that technology without the faintest clue as to what the actual implications of that are to farmers and what the actual environmental implications are to our food production system. And we're, we're basically having people that have really no idea what they're asking of farmers saying, this is how you should raise the food without really appreciating that the, the knock-on trade-offs associated with that basic prescription as to how farmers should farm. And that trade-off message is never discussed in these labeling campaigns. And that, I think, is a really important piece to get out there because it really is stopping innovation in agriculture. That's why I'm passionate about it. And I do think that the, the fear-mongering, scaring parents particularly, especially parents that have had, you know, tragic things happen to their children, they've got a disease or they've got cancer, and trying to suggest that particular production methods have been associated with why that child has that disease is just the very definition of evil. <laughs> um, and I think people that do that to make a buck, there's a special place in hell reserved for them. I agree. The food shaming and the guilt around food choices is one of the things that disgusts me about the whole issue. The other thing that came up in the, in the movie about how we as sort of the richest demographic on earth by making these decisions that aren't based on science, we have an impact in the third world as well. And there was a speaker on the panel in Guelph from Tanzania, and he spoke, I thought, very eloquently about seeing the impacts of this technology not being adopted because the first world has decided to sit on their pedestal and sort of dictate you know, what information is out there so that they aren't in a position to, to take advantage of it. 
one of the big sections in the movie is about this particular disease-resistant banana to resistance to a bacterial wilt disease. And the actual Ugandan scientists themselves have produced a genetically engineered banana that's resistant to this wilt, and they would like to use it to address this problem, which is really affecting a large portion of their population. And I guess I find it really indefensible that, you know, people in the first world that have plenty of choice in their food, that the decisions they make have the ability to impact those countries from being able to develop their own disease-resistant varieties and use them. And it's really kind of ironic to me that, you know, we have the choice of what type of food we like, but there we're talking about actually having food. (laughs) And why should the first world have any say in whether the the developing world, in this particular case, Uganda, wants to adopt a, a banana they develop themselves? And that's, I think, the movie tries to separate this issue of GMOs away from large multinational corporations to applications of this breeding method that are basically doing things like disease resistance that don't use any pesticides at all. They're not associated with Monsanto. You know, they're developed by that country for the farmers of that country and try to say, can we have a discourse around this? And and rather than just say no, is there a possibility you could use something like a disease-resistant banana within a system of, of agricultural production? You know, maybe it's agroecology, maybe it's organic. Does it always have to be black-white? Can it be a yes-and discussion? And that really, I hope, is what the movie tries to draw out of the audience and make them re-examine where they're getting their information from. And I guess these are the kind of things that are discussed at the screenings that have been done exclusively to this point. The screenings have been special events and and at universities. You sat on a number of panels, I assume, at at these screenings? Yeah, so it's been kind of interesting. I've done maybe five panels now. So um, in New York City, in Davis, uh, UC Berkeley, and Guelph. And then actually the really interesting one for me was at just a a film festival in um, Cleveland. And there, there was three showings to just an audience of non-agriculturally related people, just normal urban people that were at a film festival. It wasn't even a documentary film festival, it was just a regular old film festival. Because I don't usually think of Cleveland as a science city, just for the record. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't mean to diss Cleveland there. I guess it's just they weren't necessarily agricultural scientists. So what's funny to me and really intriguing is science audiences laugh at different bits of the movie than, than public audiences. And there's there's a certain humor that's like science nerd humor that, that gets a certain laugh in certain situations. But what was intriguing to me was the questions after the movie from that Cleveland audience, and I was on a panel there, were really, oh, you know, um, I, I came in with one opinion. And what this movie has made me do is think I'm going to go home and investigate this topic more. And as a science educator, you can't ask for a better outcome than that, is to go and say, you know what, that made me think, and I'm going to go look into it a little bit more. Um, And so that was kind of fun. And it was also, I think, the movie really challenges ignoring the scientific consensus around these big, important topics. I think cherry-picking studies and selective literature citations, in other words, here's one study that agrees with my confirmation bias, I'm going to ignore every major scientific society in the world, it really says really, guys, is this how we're going to be? You know, because really, you know, I think you're you're making a pretty big wager when you bet against the scientific consensus of, of the scientists of the world. Um, so yes, you can have that opinion. But for the most part, that has been a pretty good guide as to what the reality is. And so that's a pretty big wager to suggest that everybody's wrong, except you. 
For me, the panel discussion was at least as enjoyable as the movie because there was, you know, it was a it was a, a group of rock stars in the science community, and everybody is very well spoken. But the interesting thing is that of the half a dozen or ten people that were in the crowd that raised their hand before the movie to say that they were strongly opposed to GMOs, the movie didn't change their minds. Right. And I think you find that. And, and unfortunately, they're usually quite noisy. Um, and really, I guess, th- and, and if, if they're not going to change their mind, then probably, m- maybe we should just go have a beer and not even worry about the discussion. But really, I think the important target for this audience is people that are in the middle, the silent majority, who don't have a one strong opinion one way or another. They might have heard a couple of things and maybe they're, you know, maybe they think that there's an issue here. They're really who we want to target because they're the ones, I think, that that haven't formed their strong opinion yet and they're not necessarily ideologically motivated to never ever buy GMOs, for example. And so um, that's, I think, what we saw in the audience in the New York uh, Intelligence Squared debate was it's the people that didn't have an opinion already, the agnostic people, if you will, around the technology who really, when they hear how it could be used and what the potential benefits are, um, are willing to to move to a position to say, yeah, well, why not um, use it for those you know disease-resistant applications? And that's really, I think, what we want to have a discussion around rather than just arbitrarily banning it. What are some good applications of it? Um, and where are there issues where maybe there aren't good applications? And just have a discussion that enables um, the technology to get used in situations like disease resistance, where I really think um, it, it's hard to come up with an argument why you wouldn't want disease-resistant plants and animals. <laughs> it was super encouraging for me to see that there were people in the crowd that were in that middle that ha- were undecided where the movie actually did help. It moved them more towards looking into it further or getting some facts that you know made them more comfortable with the technology. So that being the case, it's got great potential to really have an impact out there in the market. Do you feel like there's avenues for this movie to be seen or will there be political reasons why someone like Netflix and some of these other big carriers will simply not make it available? (laughs) Well, that's an interesting question. So obviously the hope is it will go to a video on demand type service like Netflix and and that's kind of the business end of the movie, which really isn't my, my, my job. Um, But this particular issue is, is is a really interesting issue because it's tends to go against, if you're a little bit kind of, leaning leftish or you think that you're you know you're concerned about the environment and you think global warming's a problem this particular issue tends not to agree with that kind of confirmation bias and it's kind of intriguing to me to watch people that, that are quite happy to accept the national academy's reports on the science around global warming then turn around and put turn their back to the same organization saying that the data to date um, don't show any safety issues with this particular technology and how do we get through that that bubble a liberal bubble if you will where it's become kind of fashionable or or you know if you're self-aware you're going to be opposed to this technology based on absolutely incorrect information and get people to kind of look at look at it without just switching off and and I, I there was an interesting screening at Berkeley last week where a group of people wrote this letter and said, we haven't seen the movie yet, but we think it's bad for all the following <laughs> reasons. And I'm like, 
that is actually the definition of confirmation bias, right? Like, at least look at the movie um, before you rip it apart. And so I think that's kind of, that's that's what we do. We don't even look at information that doesn't agree with, the, you know, that's why, as Mark Linus says, you know, the right, right-wing people watch Fox News and left-wing people watch whatever the left equivalent is. Um, I think in his case, it was, I don't know, the Globe or something in England. And it, we've got these two competing visions of news now and and this particular issue is is one that you tend to find the more liberal-minded person tends to be against it just off the get-go without really even knowing what the data says and so how do we get that to be seen and to get for example it shown on PBS or something like that um and it because it doesn't really fit the narrative of, of that particular kind of mindset and so it's a challenge Every topic is going to have some business interests where the science aligns well with them and some where it doesn't. So global warming, I'm sure the you know, solar panel manufacturers love the science around global warming because it's, you know, big solar, um, you know, is probably really rooting for that. And of course, you know, the fossil fuel industry probably hate it. And similarly in this one, it just happens that the science in this case happens to say that these products are safe and that happens to help some industries and it hurts others who are out there attacking it right and so i think that trying to disentangle you know your preconceived notions and actually just look at the data and let the data inform your opinion is really hard for people to do and that's i think a lot of what the movie tries to discuss for sure people go into it with a with a preconceived notion interestingly there's one avenue i think that i was just following a bit on Twitter and and Kevin Folta had tweeted at Joe Rogan and Joe Rogan has I believe the number one rated podcast on iTunes in the world and so Joe tweeted back that he would like to have you on his show to talk about it. and that would certainly get people exposed to it and and interested in it and I'm not saying that when you're on Joe Rogan's show assuming that, that you do his show and he's talking to the millions and millions of people that listen you don't have to specifically say you know when I was talking to Wendell Shum of the Ontario Agcast but if but if it did come up, you you, you can feel free to. <laughs> I, I'll give it a try, Wendell. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's all going to happen. It would be great if it did. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Obviously, it's opening in New York this Saturday or this Friday, the twenty third, and Neil deGrasse Tyson's going to be there at the seven pm screening. And then it opens in LA on the 30th of June. And so it would be really fun to do a podcast around that time with with Joe Rogan. But you know, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. It certainly is a project, I think, that was really, really well done, and I appreciate the people that did it, and you included. I mean, this is something that if we're going to turn a corner, I feel like this is the kind of thing that could get us back on the positive side, and I think we need to use all the tools that we have available to fight this fight. The other side is certainly doing what they can to try and pull public perception their way, and I think that we, that we need to do that as well. You know, part of my motivation is what we're doing isn't working. <laughs> so, you know, throwing science at people is is clearly not working because we've got, you know, the majority think this product's dangerous despite the fact that there's just no data to suggest that. And so part of my interest in working in the film was, well, let's try something different. You know, can't hurt. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, given the reach of things like Food Inc. and those types of things, maybe this is a way to try to get to that silent majority and give them some more um, things to think about and, and uh, kind of maybe challenge the, the dominant paradigm that's out there at the moment. So that's I, I, I would be the best outcome if, if that actually achieves its goal. Perfect. Any other hobbies that you want to talk about? 
<laughs> hobbies. Don't know about that. Actually, a bit of a runner. So yeah, I've done the Boston Marathon three times. So that's something you probably didn't know about me. Um, but I see a runner's I, bib I behind guess... you there. Do you really register yourself as bio beef? Yeah, bio beef <laughs> that I might run under. Yeah, it's <laughs> just for fun. But you know, I, I really. I'm, I'm getting more and more concerned at this abandonment of science by the marketing companies because uh, the short-term gains they make in, in throwing out technologies has much longer in implications for the, the future sustainability of our agricultural systems. And I, I think that the farming community should be really worried about it because um, decisions are being made for them and all the ag scientists will stop doing research in this area if every time we do something it just gets put on the shelf. Um, you know, that's not a re- that's not really the way I want to spend my life. <laughs> the the furor over GMOs has pretty much thwarted my entire scientific career in terms of using this technology in animal breeding. And I don't want that to be the future for the students that I'm training now. And I think it's important that we speak up and talk about the importance of, of using the most appropriate technology. And, you know, why should agriculture, of all things, be the thing that doesn't adopt technology? I mean, it's probably the industry that has the biggest environmental impact on our earth. Um, and we should be the, the super adopters of technology, not, the, you know, going back to systems that are, that are less productive. It's going exactly the wrong way. That's right. These are important issues. So please check out the movie Food Evolution at foodevolutionmovie.com. Follow Allison at BioBeef on Twitter. Allison, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for for taking the time and joining us. Thanks for the opportunity, Wendell. I'll say goodbye to the Canadians. (laughs) Excellent. This this has been the Ontario AgCast. Please go back to Twitter. Give us a retweet. Give us a rating on iTunes. It helps us grow the audience. Don't forget to check out the Farm and Rural Ag Network. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.